0: A few months back, I was having a dinner with a group of people, some of whom I'd never met before, and and in the course of that meal, one of the people I'd never met, a very articulate and successful woman, asked me what I did for a living, to which I replied, I am a pastor of a local church. And she looked at me very inquisitively, and after explaining that she wasn't a, a particularly religious person, she asked me, what exactly does that job entail, like, Uh, What is it that you actually do every day? And so I said, well, if I'm doing it right, then I'm making disciples of Jesus Christ and teaching other people how to do the same. And then she said, well, okay. how do you make disciples of Jesus Christ then? To which I replied by telling them all about him and teaching them what he taught. And then she asked, "Okay, so how do you go about doing that? And so I explained that I did that in large part by teaching His Word, by teaching the Bible, because the Bible is God's words to us, written down in three different languages by about 40 different authors in 66 different books over three different continents, spanning across 1,500 years of different cultures, different circumstances, different groups of people, all with the same message that God is trying to tell us. And then she said, well, that's interesting. And with a subtle tone of sarcasm in her voice, she then asked, so what is God trying to tell me? And I looked at her, past the hard exterior, past the condescension, past the sarcasm, into a broken and lost soul. And I said to her, God is trying to tell you that he loves you. And before I could say anything else, before I could tell her how that message was sent to us through Jesus Christ, before I could say another word, her expression changed noticeably as she turned away in her seat and just like that, the conversation was over. Whether we like it or not or want to admit it or not, The fact is there will always be people who reject the truth about Jesus Christ no matter how it is presented to them. You can even try to dress it up or water it down to make it more culturally uh, acceptable to make it a more culturally acceptable message but listen at the end of the day you cannot make Jesus more acceptable to those who reject him by trying to make him look more like whatever is popular in our culture. In fact the more you try to change the message of Christ to suit the masses, the more they will demand that you change it even further. And I know the modern church is always trying to come up with new and creative ways to share the gospel, which is absolutely fine. But I think it's worth noting that Jesus didn't actually command us to constantly come up with new and creative ways to share his message or to try and make it more palatable to a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the truth. No, he simply commanded us to share it with everyone. Because without, listen, without any help from us at all, The gospel is the most relevant message that we could ever share with the world. Not culturally acceptable, you understand, but relevant. The problem is the church today has confused what is culturally relevant with what is culturally acceptable. You see, those are two very different things. Listen, when Noah was building a gigantic boat on dry land, that may have been the most culturally unacceptable thing that he could do at the time. But make no mistake about it, on the cusp of a worldwide flood, building that boat was certainly the most relevant thing he could do at that moment in time. You understand the difference? When you confuse what is relevant to the culture with what is acceptable to the culture, you compromise the truth and your walk with Jesus Christ. Those original disciples walked with Jesus, living out and sharing the most culturally relevant message this world has ever known, and yet Jesus said to those very same disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. John 15, 19. In other words, the world hates you for living the most relevant life you could ever hope to live. You see, what I was telling that woman at the dinner table that night, it may not have been acceptable to her, but it could not have been more relevant. Because walking with God is the only way That you will ever live the life you were created to live. You understand every other version of living apart from God is counterfeit. It's fake. It's a fallacy. You're pretending to be someone other than the authentic person that God created you to be when you're not walking with Him. Which means the most relevant and authentic life you could ever live is one spent walking with God. But listen, that won't make you popular. The moment I said, what I said to that woman at the dinner table, any chance that I may have ever had of being accepted into her social circle was over. Yet this is the truth that so much of the modern church doesn't seem willing to accept today. The fact that walking with God, although the most relevant life you could ever live, is also the most culturally unacceptable life you will ever live. But there seems to be this, uh, this overwhelming need for Christians today to try and prove to the world that we're the cool kids, that we're just like them in every other way, that we can be like the world and still love Jesus because we desperately want to be relevant. But listen, we've confused what is relevant with what is acceptable. Yet if you just read what Jesus and those early disciples said about walking with God, I'm telling you, it becomes crystal clear. Walking with God means rejecting the ways of this world, which is never going to be culturally acceptable, a culturally acceptable way to live your life, at least as far as popular culture is concerned. The apostle Paul said, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." Romans twelve two. The apostle John said, "Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is it's actually not in him." First John two fifteen. See, when Jesus was praying to the Father about his disciples, he prayed, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. You understand, Jesus isn't informing the Father of something he doesn't already know. This is for our benefit. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And listen, lest we uh, think that this prayer was just for those early first century disciples, Jesus continues in verse 20, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me. That's all of us through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17, 14 through 21. Okay, there's a reality about walking with God that we may not want to accept but that doesn't make it any less real. To walk with God You must walk away from some other things, and that will set you apart, and yes, often set you at odds with the culture around you, which we're going to see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the history of creation, with the first half of a two-part sermon about walking with God today. So let's pick the story back up, where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 5, and see what life looks like when you're truly walking with God, okay? We'll begin by reading the first five verses. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years when he died. How many of you could get some things done in 930 years? So we open up the beginning of chapter 5 with the end of the account of Adam's life, which started in Genesis 2-4, and it happens to be the first mention of a book in the Bible. Okay, It's uh, this genealogy that chronicles the history of early humanity, probably written on a clay tablet as the first uh, striking detail that we find about this book, is the fact that these early humans, Adam and his descendants, had much longer lifespans, obviously, than humans do today, because in part, uh, their bodies would have been much more pure genetically before the flood. First of all, because of the the degenerative effects of sin on the human gene pool, would not have accumulated at this early stage in the history of humankind uh, to the extent that it has today, thousands of years later. And also uh, because the environment in the pre-flood world was very different from today. Uh, As we learned early on in this sermon series, there was a protective vapor canopy according to scripture over the earth before the great flood described in Genesis 1 6 and 7 and God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. The word expanse in verse 6, which some translations have as firmament, is the Hebrew word rakia, which is literally translated as expanse or canopy. So when God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, He's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens. And then if you continue on to verse 8, God called the expanse heaven the heavens here being the Hebrew word shamayim, which includes what we refer to as space along with the earth's atmosphere. So he's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens. And yet there were also waters above the expanse or above the firmament as described in verse seven, constituting this vast blanket of water vapor over the earth prior to the flood. Uh, And again, we discussed all of this in, in depth a few weeks ago. The fact that There would have been many health benefits to having that canopy in place. For instance, a vapor canopy would have been highly effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiations and cosmic rays and other uh, destructive energies from outer space, which, of course, we know now are well-known sources of both somatic and genetic mutations, sources of uh, disease and all kinds of maladies, physical maladies, sicknesses, which obviously have an immensely negative effect on human and animal health and longevity. Additionally, the vapor canopy would have also provided a much higher atmospheric pressure than we have now. And we know today from modern medical science, which has proven that hyperbaric pressures, increased atmospheric pressures are actually extremely effective in combating disease and in promoting good general health. So all of this would have contributed to the ages of those early humans in Scripture before the flood, as we see in this chapter. And, and then one of the questions that inevitably comes up any time we talk about the history of these early humans is, well, who did Cain and his brothers marry? right? Because the logical answer is their sisters, which understandably grosses people out when you, you say that, but I just want to mention a couple of points uh, to keep in mind about it. Before the flood... There would have been no genetic harm in close marriages, particularly early on because of the reasons we just discussed, whereas many generations later after the flood, during the time of Moses, right, genetic mutations had accumulated to the point where such marriages would have been very genetically dangerous. And so incest uh, was at that point prohibited in the Mosaic law, which, by the way, is also what made it a moral issue, both then and today but not in Cain's lifetime. And so uh, as repulsive as the idea is to us morally and physically as it should be, for Cain to marry his sister in, in his day, it would have been quite uh, natural. Furthermore, this scenario where siblings had no choice but to marry each other probably lasted for a much shorter uh, period of time than most people realize. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. So Adam and Eve were responsible for filling the earth. And verse 4 of this chapter we just read tells us that Adam and Eve had both sons and daughters. And interestingly, uh, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus references the ancient rabbinical tradition concerning Adam and Eve's children in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, where he says that the number of Adam's children, as says the old tradition, was 33 sons and 23 daughters. Uh, whatever the actual number was, given their health and long lifespans, I think we can say with confidence that during this early era of humanity, the world would have been populated very quickly. Uh, In fact, it has been estimated that if Adam, during his 900 plus years on the earth, if Adam saw only half the children he could have fathered grow up, and if only half of those got married, And if only half of those who got married had children, then conservatively, Adam would have seen more than one million of his own descendants in his lifetime. Based on those calculations, that would mean that by the time of the great flood, there could have been seven billion people on the earth. That's the same as today. When Jesus was asked by his disciples when the end of this age would come, this age, he said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware of until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37 through 39, that was... That was, listen, not a culturally acceptable message at the time Jesus gave it any more than it is today. Where there are so many mirror images in the cultures of the world today, including our own, with the cultures of the world in Noah's day, as we'll see in chapter 6, right down to the number of people on the earth when that first age was ended. It may not have been a culturally acceptable message, but it could not have been more relevant And as we'll see as we continue the story, there was a stark contrast between those who walked with God at the time and everyone else. Now, uh, the rest of chapter 5 is a genealogy of the descendants of Adam. And although at a cursory reading, uh, it can seem like nothing more than a boring list of names, and we won't read through all of it today, some of it. But listen, we should never allow that to lessen the impact or significance for us of this or any other genealogy in scripture because they are in fact vitally important in testifying to the validity and history of the biblical stories and the people in them both to us today and to the people of ancient times as well which is why the first written book ever recorded in the Old Testament is a genealogy of the first Adam and the first written book recorded in the New Testament in Matthew 1 is a genealogy of the second Adam Jesus Christ which again highlights the importance of genealogies to understanding our origins and also the thorough nature of scripture in preserving history uh, the history of all of mankind all the way back to the first man Adam and just one other example of that outside of the Bible there is an ancient document called the Sumerian king list it was discovered around the turn of the last century and Uh, is another of our oldest recorded histories that we have, which happens to be a genealogy of the ancient kings of Sumer, which is now uh, southern Iraq in the Mesopotamian Valley. And it includes a story about a great flood, by the way, which we're going to talk about next week. Interestingly enough, The Sumerian king list records the ages or reigns of the kings before what they call the great deluge or the great flood as being thousands of years and the ages of the kings after the great flood as being in line with current life expectancies which supports the biblical record of antediluvian people, the pre-flood people living much longer than post-flood people and yet the ages of the Sumerian kings on that particular genealogy are much longer than those of the patriarchs in Genesis 5. Now, stay with me because this is where it gets fascinating. Because there were two different prominent methods for mathematical calculations in this time period when the Sumerian genealogy was recorded. There was the decimal method and the sexagesimal method. And in the Genesis uh, genealogy in chapter 5, There are 10 patriarchs or rulers listed before the flood, if you include the first man, Adam, and the flood hero, Noah. While in the Sumerian genealogy, there are only eight kings listed before the flood with no account of the first Sumerian man or the flood hero, at least on this particular list. And so historians have discovered that if you take the eight Sumerian kings, and the eight patriarchs of Genesis 5 between Adam and Noah, and place them side by side, and then convert the ages of the Sumerian kings from the sexagesimal system to the decimal system, the ages are the same as the Genesis patriarchs. That cannot be a coincidence. And by the way, this is one simple example of the ancient historical writings outside of biblical scripture that support the biblical account of the creation story where genealogies play such a significant role in the validation of the history of those stories and the people in them. And now, uh, as we move then through chapter 5, a pattern develops that establishes the line of Seth, which if you remember from last week was a lineage representing blessing and hope and salvation in stark contrast to the line of Cain. And just to be clear... There were certainly many other children birthed in this line of Seth during this time, but these were the patriarchs, the leaders, so they were the ones written down. And one other observation, just for clarity... The Enoch and Lamech in the line of Cain mentioned in chapter 4 from last week are not the same people as the Enoch and Lamech listed in chapter 5, which again is the line of Seth. These are uh, simply family names that at times are repeated, just as names today are often repeated in families. Okay, So with each section of the rest of this chapter, the number of years that each patriarch lived is given before he fathered a son, and then the number of years that he lived after he fathered a son is given, and then his total number of years on the earth is given, and then in each case save one, it says, and then he died. So as you read through this list, over and over and over and over and over, and over again, it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, which again is this pattern throughout the chapter until we get to Verse 24 where that pattern is starkly interrupted. Let's read it. We'll skip down and read verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is a stark contrast, a deviation, a break from the pattern of the rest of the chapter where it says that all of the other patriarchs died, but not Enoch, because he walked with God. When it says, by the way, that Enoch walked with God, we know that means far more than just believing in God because Hebrews 11, 5, first of all, tells us that Enoch lived his life in a way that pleased God. If you read it in the Septuagint, the ancient uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, that phrase, walked with God, is always translated as pleased God, which means Enoch lived his very life in a way that was pleasing to God. And yet we know even more than that about Enoch, because Jude, the brother of Jesus, tells us in Jude 14 that Enoch was a prophet. In fact, when Jude writes about Enoch... He's actually quoting directly from the book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal writing. It's not part of the Bible, which means we know it's not necessarily the infallible word of God, but it is most certainly a historical record written by Enoch that is obviously useful in furthering our understanding of historical events. And obviously, at least parts of it can be trusted as accurate and true as, again, Jude himself, Jesus' brother, quotes from 1 Enoch 1 9 here in Jude 14 through 16 in the Bible. Right? And furthermore, just so that you know, much of the book of Enoch is included in the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The point being that when Enoch is described as having walked with God, we know that he was much more than just a believer in God. We know from Jude that he was a fearless, prophet of God who told of the coming of Christ and judgment upon all who would reject him, which you can rest assured, by the way, was not a culturally acceptable message. But it could not have been more relevant, especially when you factor in the imminent flood that would bring judgment upon all the earth and foreshadow the end of this current age of the earth. And to be sure, uh, these verses about Enoch are very intentionally meant to highlight the contrast between a man who truly walked with God and everyone else. And then chapter 5 closes out with the birth of Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And by the way, when you look at how all of the the patriarchs' lifespans overlapped one another, it becomes evident that Seth died when Noah was 14 years old, (laughs) meaning Noah probably knew Adam's son which is just amazing to think about. Okay, let's continue on now. Chapter 6, starting with the first four verses. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So in addition to uh, the human condition growing rampantly sinful, as we'll see, we're now introduced to the Nephilim who were the product of these sons of God reproducing with the daughters of man. Uh, The other three times this phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament Uh, Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7, it always refers to angels. Furthermore, the translators of the Septuagint always translated the phrase sons of God as angels. Also, Jude mentions the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, Jude 6, and then goes on to say in Jude 7 that like Sodom and Gomorrah, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, and again, directly from the book of Enoch. Enoch says, And it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments, and they became pregnant, and they bore great giants. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. So the sons of God, fallen angels, bred with human women, and had offspring called Nephilim, who would have been half man, half angel, and the word Nephilim uh, in the ancient Hebrew meant fallen ones while the earliest Greek translators rendered the word to mean giants. So the fallen ones become giants which would explain the statement that these were the mighty men, men of renown. They may well have had uh, superhuman strength. We don't know. Some have even suggested that the Nephilim are the source of the demigod myths in other cultures like the Greek gods. Right? We certainly don't know for sure. That's all conjecture. But what we do know is that this was definitely a satanic plan to wipe out any possibility of a messiah. Because if Satan could get enough of his angels to intermarry with human women, he could pollute the entire genetic pool of mankind with the satanic corruption, making the human race unfit for bringing forth the promised Messiah. Theologian James Boyce said the Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. And unless, uh, unless that sounds too far-fetched for you, think about it. The most frightening part about that whole scenario is that it almost worked. The human race had become so infected by evil that God wiped out the entire population of the earth, save one family. Which, by the way, is not at all a culturally acceptable Message today that a supposing loving God would wipe out everyone on the planet but one family right the fact that he would wipe out nearly all of humanity is not a very popular message today and yet it could not be more relevant for this culture as every day we come one step closer to the end of days let's finish our story for today then chapter 6 verses 5 through 10 Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So again, the evil has become uh, so rampant, so widespread, and so horrific that God has decided to annihilate the entire human race except for one man and his family. Why? Because that man walked with God. Clearly, There is a profound contrast between Noah who walked with God and everyone else because walking with God, listen, walking with God is more than just believing in something. It's doing something about what you believe. And that may never be culturally acceptable, but it will always be culturally relevant Obviously Noah was the only one in his time willing to be different. He was the only one in his time willing to be set apart. He was the only one in his time willing to walk away from the ways of the world no matter how popular they may have been. You see walking with God means walking away from the world. This is the first point. In our outline, which again, we'll span over today's message as well as next Sunday's. And so today, as we close out this first half of the sermon, we'll spend the last few minutes that we have focused on just this first point in the sermon, that to walk with God, you have to walk away from the world. Listen, not isolate yourself from the world. Jesus very clearly tells us, as we read earlier, that he sent us actually into the world, Right? But he said over and over and over again, you're not of this world. He sent us into the world, but not to be of it, not to be like it, and certainly not to share in its ways. Noah lived in the world. He was surrounded by culture, but the way that he lived could not have been any more different than the culture around him. I want to pause here and be clear about something before we continue down this track of thought. Because Noah didn't earn His way into God's favor. You understand, Noah didn't earn his way into God's favor by being good. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it, he found it. The fact is, as a human being, Noah was as guilty of sin as any other, as we'll see later in the story of his life. And when verse 9 says that Noah was blameless in his generation, by the way, that doesn't mean he was sinless. The truth is, As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're all blameless uh, because of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, but not one of us is sinless, right? The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. In fact, when verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the word favor in the ancient Hebrew is the word Cain. It's literally translated as grace. We know, of course, that grace from God is not earned. The Apostle Paul said, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, not a result from us being good. Why? So that no one may boast, not even Noah. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Noah found grace from God just as every single follower of Christ does today. And because of the unmerited grace that has been given to us, listen, we can walk with God just like Noah did. We could choose to live righteously just like Noah did. We can live counter to the culture just like Noah did. We can lead others away from the destruction that is promised when we live apart from God and into the salvation of God that He provides eternally, just as Noah did. That's what you do when you walk with God. And as a result of the grace of God in Noah's life, listen, he did far more than just believe in Him. Hebrews eleven seven 7 says that Noah reverently feared God. Even more than that, the apostle Peter described Noah as a herald of righteousness. Second Peter 2 5. I love that word. Herald in the ancient Greek, it's the word kerux. It means preacher. You see, like Enoch. A prophet who proclaimed the truth to the culture around him and in doing so lived a life completely counter to his culture. Noah was a preacher who proclaimed the truth about God and in doing so he also lived a life counter to his culture only because of the grace in their lives. Both men were said to have walked with God. Both of them proclaimed the truth about God to a generation around them. Listen, a generation who rejected their message. You understand? This is what it means to walk with God. It's not cultural acceptance, it is spiritual relevance because of the grace of God at work in our own lives, which means living a life that emulates the life of Christ. It's being so close in your relationship with Him that you hear the voice of His Spirit within you guiding your every move. It's proclaiming the truth about Him to others every opportunity you get, whether at a dinner table, on a platform, or in a private conversation, knowing that most of those people you talk to will reject The message, you see walking with God has absolutely nothing to do with being accepted or trying to make Christianity more attractive to the world. No, it's about sharing the truth with the world. No matter how culturally unacceptable that truth may ever be and then pleading with God for his grace to invade their very souls. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That is the heart of a man who walked with God and the question that each of us really needs to answer today is this. Am I truly walking with God? And to help you answer that I'll ask another question. If tomorrow you stopped believing what you believe today about Jesus Christ how would your life be different Other than probably not coming here anymore, what would be different about your life? Would it be obvious to everyone who knows you that something is clearly very different about you, that something has drastically changed? Would your life look different to them, or would it look exactly the same? Would Would they notice any change at all? Would the places you go to be different? Because the places you go to now, you only go to because of Jesus. Would the things you do be different? Because the things you do now, you only do because of Jesus. Would the conversations you have be different? Because the conversations you're having now, you're only having because of Jesus. Jesus. With the relationships that you have, would they be different? Because the relationships you have now, you only have because of Jesus. Would your life look radically different than it does today if you didn't have faith in Christ, or would it look exactly the same? Because listen, when you walk with God, Your life stands out from the culture around you. You go places and you do things and you have conversations and you enter into relationships that you never would without Jesus. You understand, I'm not asking you if you believe in Him today. I'm asking you if you're walking with Him today. If you are, then you're well acquainted with rejection. You're used to not fitting in with the crowd. You understand that cultural acceptance is not the goal of the church and you're willing to do whatever it takes to walk with Him, which we're going to talk about more next week. see, the truth is, walking with God is the only way For you to live the life you were created to live. Because every other version of living apart from God is a counterfeit. It is a fake. It is a fallacy because you're pretending to be someone other than the authentic person he created you to be. Which means the most relevant and authentic life you could ever live is the one spent walking with God. But listen to me, that will never ever make you popular. And so if you're going to spend your life walking with him then you're going to have to get over the desire for acceptance from this culture. In fact, you're going to have to utterly abandon that desire because it is never going to happen as long as you're walking with Jesus. What will happen, guaranteed, is at times you will find yourself being hated by the world for the message you bring to it. Jesus promised us that. So look, If your goal is acceptance, then go on and run with the world. But if you want to be truly relevant, powerful, prophetic even, a voice of truth to this generation, then forever turn your back on the ways of this world and start walking with God. Let's pray.